I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Hey there. Do you want to be on your first million? I know some of you do because you write to me all the time, (laughs) but a more organized way. So if you want to be on your first million and you have made your first million, you can email arlenhamilton at gmail.com. A-R-L-A-N Hamilton with one M at gmail.com. No spaces, no dots, any of that. In the subject line, please put your first million guest and then write a very, very brief one paragraph blurb about who you are, where you live, how you made your first million. Just give me a little taste of it. And uh, we'll talk about uh, maybe doing an interview. If I don't get back to you, it just means that we got too many responses because we already are going through several. um, And we'll try to get to you another time. Someone from my team will reach out. If we are interested in it works out timing wise and location wise, I love doing all of the interviews in person. It's just a very specific way I like to interview for this podcast. So that kind of, you know, sets up a little bit of a logistical issue, but we'll make it work if it, if it makes sense. So that's Arlen Hamilton at Gmail, A-R-L-A-N Hamilton at gmail.com. If you want to be a guest on your first million and you've made your first million. Thank you. Hey, welcome back to your first million. It's Arlen again, always very happy to be back. Very happy uh, to say that I am now married. My wife is in the other room. Thank you very much. So excited. Um, But we're back. I am going to drop this new, new episode. I can't wait for you to hear this interview with Paul Judge from Atlanta. Now, I interviewed Paul at Essence Fest a few weeks ago in New Orleans. And when I interviewed him, it was around the same time I interviewed Jewel Burks. So if you enjoy this interview, definitely go back, listen to Jewel. Um, They both talk about Atlanta. And and, um, the interesting thing here is the thread here is that they're both featured in the latest Fast Company. I believe it's the, I want to say it's the September 2019 issue of Fast Company that is out right now on newsstands. Tristan Walker is on the cover. Jewel Burks and Paul Judge are featured prominently, interviewed, great pictures. And the whole um, issue is about Atlanta, which is just a fantastic city and I think we've been talking about Atlanta for a couple of years now on uh, our various web, uh, sorry, our various podcasts. But Paul and Jewel have been talking about Atlanta for 10 plus years. Like with Paul, what you'll understand is that it goes deep. Paul has so much to do with what's happening right now with Atlanta in Atlanta and the tech scene and, and in some ways in the, in the entertainment scene. Um, it's a black man who is a millionaire. Don't think he gets the credit he deserves or the attention he deserves. He may like it that way, but I don't think he gets the attention he deserves and the credit due. I'm very, very happy to introduce you to Paul if you have never heard of him and to show you a different side of him if you have heard of him. Now, those of you who are friends with him and have watched him shine in Atlanta over the past two decades, you know, you know what's up and something that uh, I'm very, very happy to share here. I knew about Paul for several years. What I knew about Paul was that he had co-founded these companies that went on to sell for either sell for hundreds of millions of dollars or more, 
or um, just do incredible like revenue or just be a really great example of what a tech company could do and be. And I don't think I quite understood until this interview just how integral he is to that scene in Atlanta. And finally this year with that Fast Company issue, hopefully with this episode and just in general, more and more people around the country and the world will know him. Thanks, Paul, for doing all that you've done. I don't want to spend too much time gushing, but I just think it's so impressive. And Paul himself, he's such a, he's really smart. <laughs> he's so smart. And uh, I love the fact that he's an engineer, super technical. This episode is going to be for people who want to create a sustainable company that's legendary, that has legacy, that creates jobs for a lot of people that tackles big, important problems, may not be sexy problems, but big and important problems for all sorts of markets. And if you want to do so with consistency and with values and just being yourself the whole way. So I dig it. I dig him. Let's get into it. So you're a tech investor. Paul, how old are you? I am 42 years old. 42. And where do you live? I live in Atlanta. And the way I know you and your wife is through Instagram. <laughs> and you all are, I mean, you could probably have an Instagram show. Like you, <laughs> what I like about it is that you show your kind of fabulous life. It looks mm. like to me, that's how it looks. And okay. then there's these moments of, of, you know, just you know, going to the grocery store and doing your thing. But there, most of it is like a fabulous life, but not in the way where it's like um, an aesthetic. Okay. And to me, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It feels like what you're trying to do is be aspirational hmm. for other people. And I'm going to go ahead and say black folks. Okay. Does that feel like what you're doing or do you just feel like I'm just posting on Instagram? I'd say mostly I'm, I'm posting on Instagram, but in, in doing so, I realize that I'm, I'm providing a, a window uh into like what I get to see and experience. And I, I, I realize that what I get to see and experience, I'm fortunate to see it. Yes. And so if I take the moment to pull my camera out, someone else can see it. And in doing so, yeah, they realize it even exists. And so I guess that, that would be called aspirational, but I don't, I don't think of it like that. Like aspirational to me, sometimes feels like the Instagrammer who's like on a hill at a resort and like there's the, the, the pina colada sitting there. For me, it just feels like you know, I'm, I'm in the room. I want to see, let other people see the room as well. Yes. I used to do that and I still do it. I, I used to do it. And when I was working in music and had no money right. and I just thought, how cool is it? That I get to kind of be backstage. I wanted to peel back as Janet says, the velvet rope. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just say, this would be no fun if I couldn't share it yep. with someone. And so it feels the same to yep. you. Yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it, uh, pulling back the rope and, um, and just showing what what exists and, and what happens because so many of these things that I didn't know existed, you know, X years ago. Uh, and so for, yeah, someone else like, hey, this exists, there's a broader world uh, and continue to, you know, aim to like, you know, get into more rooms, break down more doors. Uh, I probably should put more of the late night working, like on the whiteboard, typing, like kind of the, the things that are, are less glamorous, less fun uh, because there's more hours of that in my real life. Yes. Than on my Instagram life. It's often the case. Yeah. Yes. You know, there, uh, yeah, I, I won't get into all this stuff. Okay. So <laughs> let's talk about how you got here okay. and, and where you're going. Okay. So you, did you grow up in Atlanta or is that a new home for you? I grew up uh, right here in Louisiana. In Louisiana. Uh, and in Baton Rouge, which is uh, about an hour away from where we are now in New Orleans. Yeah. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I was born in Jackson, Mississippi. So I spent a lot of time back and forth. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you, the South. Yes. So you grew up in Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge. Yeah. <laughs> and did you go to college in Atlanta? Because when I think of Atlanta, uh -huh. your name is one of the first names that pops up. I've been there a long time. So yeah. I grew up in Baton Rouge. I went to high school in Baton Rouge. And in 95, I moved to Atlanta to go to college. I went to Morehouse College. And... Uh, from there, it's funny, I grew up in Baton Rouge and been around here. I didn't know really computer science was a thing. Uh, and I thought I wanted to be a chemical engineer because you'd like pass all the chemical refineries growing up. And so I got to, I was programming though, funny enough, in high school because like my mom taught typing. 
And we'd always have like a typewriter, then a word processor. Then we had this old raggedy, like 286 computer. And I figured out that if you didn't close the disk drive, you would get a prompt. And if you type to that thing, it would type back to you. And you type and it would type back to you. Next thing I knew, I was programming. But I didn't really know that that was a major or there's a world or anything called VC. or, or And so I went to college. I left Baton Rouge in 95, landed at college and thought I wanted to be a chemical engineer. And then realized there was a, there was a class on programming. I was like, whoa, wait a second. I like this and I'm good at it. And so I switched my major. And so I did computer science at Morehouse. And then I went to Georgia Tech and did my PhD in computer science. And so that's how I ended up in Atlanta. And I've been there ever since. So I I guess, what, about 20, 23 years now. Yes. And what what do you consider the first moment that you understood that uh, this would be your career? The first moment, I think it was that class, that summer at Morehouse. I was uh, on a scholarship that was funded by NASA. And we had to come the summer before the, the fall, right? And so fresh out of high school, 18 years old, leave Baton Rouge. I just finished high school graduation. Two weeks later, I'm in Atlanta, like taking seven classes during the summer which was a shock for me because I, I didn't really know how to study. I wasn't really a good student in high school. Like I had this natural ability, but I just used it to like get through and I didn't have good study habits. And so you land in like this college dorm and there's seven classes and there's deadlines. And it was shock. I thought I was not going to make it through that summer. Mm. Right? I literally called my parents like, yeah, y'all might need to bring the truck. So y'all can pick me up and pick up my stuff so we can go back to Baton Rouge. Cause I don't think this college thing is for me. Uh, but the one class that I really liked was the programming class. And so that's when I realized, let me really kind of pour into this. And I still didn't know that it was a career yet. I just knew it was a topic and a subject and I liked doing it and I was fairly good at it and I wanted to learn more. So for me, it turned into like a quest to learn more well before it turned into like a a aspiration around a career. Yeah. Well, how would you describe yourself as a child? Were you more, were you into like video games and putting things together and tinkering. Cause you, you remind me of, of a lot of the Silicon Valley guys and mostly guys um, <laughs> who, who kind of stumbled upon the kind of the same way, but you were just in a different city. And this is such a great example of why we need to be looking elsewhere. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. I used to, you know, tear things apart. My, my dad uh, was an engineer, electrician. So he would you know, always be putting things together. I would be taking things apart. Right. My mother was an educator. So kind of learning was a priority. Uh, and then, you know, because she focused on this, uh, what we call it at the time, office occupations, which is going to teach people to be what we call today EAs. Uh, There's always computers and typewriters. And so when I put those things together, next thing I know, I was kind of making websites for the local like car lot. Right. Or uh, things like dental offices going around like, hey, do you want a website? I can make you one. And so that's how I got into it. It was about tinkering and experimenting. So you were you were making websites already as a teenager. Yeah, just I figured out you can get the computer to do stuff. And so I would like try to get it to make a game for myself. But like not in a way of like graphical games like we have today, but just like the number guessing game. Right. Like guess a number. No, try again. I was writing a code to give myself a game to play. Mm -hmm. And then that turned into like making websites for like local businesses and just was trying to figure out what else can you get this computer thing to do for you? And that became my curiosity. And so I was tinkering, you know, just it was about learning more, figuring out what all this this computer thing could do for me. It wasn't so much about business and dollars. It was, OK, what else can this machine do to entertain me yes. and to do stuff for me? So then you you're you go to Morehouse. Uh-huh. You did you pledge? I didn't pledge. OK. Yeah. But there is a there's a certain sort of I mean, I see today this would have been 20 years ago that you were there. There is a certain you never uh, leave that kind of brotherhood. Right. Yeah, you never yeah leave that place the the, the way you arrived, right? It uh, it has a, a certain um, kind of sacredness to the, the the grounds, right? When you kind of walk in the same halls that like Martin Luther King walked in as a student, and it did a couple things for me. I mean, one, it brought in my, my vision and made me really go kind of lift my aim and and goals, right? There was a statue that would walk past every morning leaving the dorm. It was a uh, Benjamin E. Mays. And it said, uh, you know, basically low aim, uh, not fail your sin. Right. And it really taught you to kind of have the audacity to dream big. But then just also in Morehouse, there's this expectation of excellence. Right. And so it wasn't just enough to like have a big idea. You had to like really dig in and, and do the hard work. And that was the expectation. 
And so that that changed my my view on life in a, in a couple of ways, right? To like dream big, but then also just kind of put your head down and do the work. Uh, so yeah, definitely left there different than how I arrived. So then what was the first company that you co-founded? Uh, the first company. So, you know, we're at Morehouse. So leaving Morehouse, uh, tell you, I, I had an internship at IBM and I wanted to work on their website. Right? This was 1998. And I wanted to work on their website, but I couldn't just get straight in to work on their website. And so I got an internship uh, doing QA, but not QA in like the fancy way you would think of like automatic Java test today. It was sit in an attic and test kit software. Right. So like two plus three equals five. Oh, wait, that one said six. That's wrong. So I was clicking through in an attic with no windows testing software at IBM until an opening showed up on the web development team. So I moved to the web development team. This was 1998 and we're making the like shop IBM website and people were buying hard drives for like you know, $5,000, a memory stick for $2,000. And we're sitting there like, wait a second, where's all this money going? Right? Like, do you know where the money's going? And we're all sitting around. We're coding the site. It's like, that's a lot of money. And so I became curious about, wait, where's the money on this internet thing? Like, where is it going? Like, who's keeping it? Who's stealing it? Who's keeping it safe? So it opened my eyes up to what we call now cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. I was really curious, like, where are the dollars going? How do you keep them safe on this internet thing that we're coding? And so I looked around in 1998 and was like, okay, what is that called? And I saw like two different research groups and grad schools working on cybersecurity, right? One was at USC, one was at Georgia Tech. And so I, I decided to stay in Atlanta and go to Georgia Tech because I finished Morehouse in three years. And so all my friends were still there and Georgia Tech had this new cybersecurity center. So boom, now I'm interested in cybersecurity and learning more about cybersecurity and getting better, uh, which leads me to your question of like, what was the first company? So I'm a year and a half into grad school, working on cybersecurity, doing like secure content distribution work. And I meet a guy named uh, Jay Chaudhry. And Jay had just sold his uh, previous company, SecureIT, and he was about to make a new company called Cypher Trust to do email security. And I said, all right, this is it. <laughs> I should be here. Hey, Jay, I should be like VP of technology. I'll take that corner office over there. It'll look great on pictures. And he looks at my resume, which basically wasn't existent at the time. And said, look, you can basically be an intern. You can sit outside of my office. I can keep an eye on you. And I said, that doesn't sound that appealing, but there's something about this startup world. So I'll tell you what, I'll take it. And that's how I kind of entered at my first startup. Uh, I think, you know, technically employee number nine at a place called Cypher Trust as the lowest person on the totem pole. And did that become some sort of success story? Uh, it, it, it did. So we, it was a, it was a, it was a bit of a, of a detour to a success story, right? But uh, we started that company and I was at first building the encryption software. I was writing the encryption software and we were trying to make a, a secure email server. So this is what, 2000 people had email and business and we needed to keep it secure. And so we made a product and we started to install it and like nobody really cared about it. No one really cared at the time about keeping their email service. So customers are like in turn, as we would call it today, but in other words, kick us out. And we're sitting there like, what do we do? And so the company was kind of falling apart. Uh, and then we kind of all had this idea of, wait, don't replace the email server. Let's put the security in front of the email server. So a bit of a pivot by listening to customers. And then the, the spam problem came as well. Like spam was showing up in email. We ended up building uh, one of the best solutions for stopping spam in email. And then we got a customer, another customer, another customer, and the company grew. I became CTO. And so I was responsible for like product and research, all of engineering. And so we did that for six years and we grew to about 300 employees and the company was acquired uh, for about $300 million. Mm. Uh, and so that was my, my first startup. Yeah. And so what sort of years were th was this? Uh, this was 2000 to 2006. And how long did it take you to go from intern to CTO? It's about a year, year and a half. It's uh, very fast. It's fast. And it was a little bit of, uh, you know, like this failure or like lack of adoption of our first product caused a couple things to happen. A lot of people left. And so we were just sitting there as a few of us left kind of around the whiteboard. And I just happened to be the person with the marker in my hand. And it was like, <laughs> what if we try this? And another person like, yeah, what do we try this? So we started to kind of redesign things. Uh, and over the years, we built this amazing team. Uh, you know, Jay is a, a visionary that I just I learned a ton from. Right, he now runs a company called uh, called Zscaler, 
and then we built this amazing team of engineers and salespeople. And, uh, you know, we just really jailed. And over the next six years, like took on a lot of competition, like from Atlanta. And at the time, you know, I wasn't spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley. We were just kind of in our capsule uh, in the middle of Georgia trying to build a product that customers cared about. Mm. And then so uh, 2006, it's acquired. Do you go with it? At the, at the acquisition or do you go on to something else? I went with the acquisition. So we were acquired by a company called Secure Computing, which was NASDAQ traded public company. And so I became CTO of Secure Computing. Wow. So we're about 1,500 people and we made a range of cybersecurity products like authentication tokens to firewalls. Our customers were governments and, you know, half the Fortune 500. And I was a CTO of the entire company and I was 29. Right. This is in 2006. And for a year, I'd fly to, we had offices in Australia and Minneapolis and California, and we were designing new products. But then I started to get the itch to like, go get on a whiteboard again and start a new company from scratch. And so I was with Secure Computing for a little over a year. And then I shook hands with my boss, the CEO, who was uh, uh, McNulty at the time, and we shook hands. And for the first time in life, I just, I didn't have anything to do. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know if it's going to take a year off or two years off. I, you know, kind of made my first X dollars. Well, this podcast is called Your First Million. So would that have been your first million at that point? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I woke up the next morning so early and sat straight up in bed like, oh, no, I need to go build something. Yes. And so what I thought would be like a couple of years off turned into like a couple of days. And then we started <laughs> another company. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this time we called it PureWire. And this was like, think about the end of 2007 going into 2008, people were getting uh, iPhones and tablets for the first time. And we're like, oh, all of a sudden, all your data's leaving the office. We need the cybersecurity to leave with you. We need to put the cybersecurity in the cloud. And so we built one of the early uh, cloud-based cybersecurity companies or like security as a service. And that was called uh, PureWire. So that was kind of the, the second company that we built. And were you the co-founder CTO of that company? I was. I was a co-founder CTO. I started with a guy named Mike McBrunnis. He At Cypher Trust, he ran sales. I ran product. And so when we left, we started PureWire together. And how are you uh, evolving as a, as a technician at this point? Because as a, as a developer and a, and, a, and a coder and an engineer, because it seems like you were the most senior person in that lane at right. these companies just by default, like just by accident almost. Yep. Did you have mentorship? Did you have someone that you would call on and say, I can't crack this? Uh, around technology, you know, we, we just built an amazing team. Uh, you know, I, I think of it like we we're trying to build an Olympic team. Like we we're trying to build email security was a very competitive market. And so companies from around the world were coming to compete with us. And so we we're just building the, the best team. And so I spent a lot of time learning about recruiting. And so I started to think of it like a, a college football coach, right? You spend half the year on the field and you spend half the year recruiting your team that you're going to go to war with, you know? And so we built this amazing technical team. And so a lot of the guys have gone on to, you know, like Dimitri and Sven are uh, at CrowdStrike and just went public. And uh, Arjiv, who was on the team, runs a company called RodSale. A lot of that technical team have now become, you know, world-class entrepreneurs of, of their own. And so that was key for how we, I think, became some of the best at solving the problems we were solving. Uh, but then as the transition happened, I was able to start to spend more of my time thinking about kind of other areas where technology plugged in, what business problems that we were going to go solve, right? And, you know, how we listen to customers and think about timing product roadmap, how we think about kind of pricing things, how we think about having the right margin to go with the technology. And so I was able to kind of spend a lot of time learning those other things versus just Kind of, can we solve the technical problem? Mm -hmm. And so what happened at the second company? Uh, the second company, we, we followed our playbook, right? We said, okay, let's build the best team. Let's listen to customers. Uh, let's build the best product. And then uh, it was 2008, 2009, financial markets happened. And so even though we were kind of on paper doing all the right things, we just, funding dried up. And so there was this question of like, what do you do? Right. The same folks that were offering us amazing Series A's, our uh, Series B's a few weeks before just said, oh, we can't hit our capital calls. We can't therefore fund your company. I'm sorry. Call us back in a couple quarters. And we had the luck of the quarter that we needed to raise funding. It was like the quarter everyone basically tightened their, their checkbooks. And so 
we looked at each other and said, what do we do? Like, do we go out of business? Do we shut it down? I think we had about 30, 40 employees at the time. And Mike and I looked at each other and said, no, we're going to go all in. We're going to float it. Mm. And so we started covering payroll just out of our pocket. And, you know, about 40 full-time people, payroll was hefty. Oh, yeah. And so every two weeks, we, I would get on the phone and wire my half. He would, I would hand him the phone because we had the same banker. He would wire his half. We'd cut payroll. And two weeks later, we'd do it again. And two weeks later, we'd do it again. And meanwhile, we were kind of still building and figuring out, you know, the investor said, it's on you all to figure out how to land this plane. And so that's when I kind of learned that even if you do, you know, kind of all the things you're supposed to do on paper, there's these external factors that come into play. And then you really get tested around your perseverance as, a, as an entrepreneur and like really get tested about like how much risk you're willing to take. And so, you know, with our personal capital, we went all in and managed to uh, land the plane. So were you were ever scared? Were you ever like worried that this would, would run out? Uh, yeah. 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 No, we just, you know, for me, we just had an exit, uh, you know, a few years before, uh, you know, just uh, accumulated some wealth. And now we're kind of getting a position where we're betting almost 100 percent of it you know, back in, you know, seven digits back into this company uh, with, you know, no VCs sitting there to write the check. And we were just going in, cut paying payroll and building product and trying to add customers quick enough. And, you know, we're sitting, I remember calling my banker and he was like, Paul, I hope this works out because I kind of like you as a client. <laughs> and so it was, um, it was all in. It was a and tight so room. it was, and, but so I realized, you know, this perseverance thing, but also like this art of landing the plane, right? If you start a, a technology company, even if it's successful, the, most companies won't necessarily IPO where you're like a, a self-sustaining. I think of an IPO as like you, you have a rocket, it lifts off, and then you have a satellite that orbits forever. It's like an independent company that stays in the air forever. Whereas like a lot of successful companies like airplanes, like you take off, you have a great ride, but then you have to land somewhere. Right. And too often we don't talk about the landing. We don't talk about like choosing what airport, choosing where and when you're going to land. And if you don't think about that, you could take an otherwise great kind of company and, and turn it into, you know, not what it's meant to be if you're not thoughtful about the landing and thoughtful about kind of what's the second chapter. Well, let's talk about that just for a second, yeah. because I have a joint venture with Mark Cuban. That's a small fund that he is the I, he wouldn't call it small. It's a million dollars and it's a substantial amount. But he is the sole LP, the sole investor. And I make the investments. And so, you know, that's the relationship we have. And then recently on Twitter, he said, and we don't always agree. We often argue, which we are very public <laughs> about. But he said on Twitter that if you have an exit plan, you are not passionate enough about your company. Hmm. And that kind of is in conflict with what you just said. And I think they can both be true and they can both be have their faults hmm. to it. What do you think about that? Like you... When you, if you were in the room with Mark, how would you counter that? You know, I, so I, I don't have the, the full context of his, his statement, but I think of it as, look, if I'm in a car, I'm not driving down the highway with my blinker on looking for the next exit. That's not how the way to run a company. Don't keep your blinker on looking for the next exit, but like you should have an idea of where your destination is, right? You shouldn't just be driving your car in circles around the country, right? And ideally, yes, every company wants to have the opportunity to be a, a independent, self-sustaining a publicly traded company or just a profitable long-term uh, independent company. Every company would desire that outcome and you should build every company for that outcome. However, the data would suggest that over 90% of successful companies will end up being a part of another company. And if you're thoughtful about what that could potentially mean, you might want to think about, you know, what type of companies would fit. Mm. Uh, where would you be an amazing product group? Where would you be an amazing business line? Uh, do you have a similar uh, sales motion as that company? Do you have a similar margin structure as that company? Uh, is your geographic location strategic for the set of companies? That doesn't mean hang outside their parking lot all day with a for sale sign, but being thoughtful about what the next chapter would mean. And some of the companies have had their best outcomes after the acquisition. That second chapter is really when they were able to have scale and have global impact. Uh, and so I certainly would agree that you don't keep your blinker on and just drive like you're constantly trying to get off the highway. Uh, but, and you should build for the long term. Uh, but I do believe it's healthy uh, and unfortunately a bit of a taboo to think about your company, what's its second chapter. Uh, and I've just seen the difference in companies that are thoughtful about that. Uh, not, not 
uh, infatuated with it, but at least thoughtful about it. That's very interesting. And and I, I think he would uh, uh, respect that and agree with that. Um, you sell to Barracuda. And what year would that have been? Let's see. I think 2009. Okay. Uh, I believe it was around 2009. And so then uh, we became part of the team at, at Barracuda. And, uh, you know, that company grew and, and IPO'd uh, and, you know, just solved a number of networking and IT problems for small and medium businesses, which was a, a, a great learning opportunity for me because I'd spent so much time uh, building enterprise products, really focused on Fortune 1000. And here, not only with Fortune 1000, our customers, but if you had a, a 20 person plumbing company or a 20 person electrical and you had IT problems, we were there to solve your IT problems. Uh, which in some ways uh, inspired uh, a company that we built later called Luma. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, well, small businesses have these IT problems. And you watch the trend. It used to be that hackers only cared about the largest companies in the world. And then they went down market to medium companies and small companies. And then hackers start to care about individuals and families. And so realizing that trend, we said, oh, we should go build a networking and security uh, for the home. Right. Uh, and so that was just kind of another observation that turned into, uh, you know, building uh, another company. And it was Luma that where I kind of got in on understanding who you were okay. and, and what you did. I knew that you I believed you were a co-founder of Luma. Yep. And um, I had spoken to uh, what was, I think it was Excel mm-hmm. about you all. So when did when did you launch Luma. Was there any? Did you give yourself any time in between that next acquisition and well, when you started? Well, actually, I, I, in our conversation here, I skipped a company. A oh, bit. there's so, another company. Yeah. See, this is interesting. <laughs> so there was a company before Luma. Yeah. So we're at Barracuda, and I was in my office at Barracuda and in, in Buckhead. I received a call from a professor, uh, Mustaka, at Georgia Tech. He said, "Hey, there's a student I want you to meet." So I drove down to Midtown and we had lunch at the Georgia Tech Hotel. And I met a guy across the table named VJ Ballas Supermania. And VJ uh, was a brilliant guy. He's the CEO today of Pindrop. In one hand, he had a research paper that he'd written to solve a, a problem. And the other hand, he had a job offer from a big company on the West Coast. And he said, I'm trying to decide if I should go take this amazing job or if we should take a chance on creating a company. And I looked at the numbers like, that's a pretty... Um, meaningful job offer you have there. And then I read the research paper. It's like, wow, does that work? And so we started a company called Pindrop. Mm. And, uh, you know, VJ is a CEO. We started kind of around that table. And today it's about 300 employees. Uh, it's raised about $200 million. Uh, it protects the call centers of, of most of the large financial institutions in the country, as well as large retailers. What it actually solves is it turns out the easiest way to rob a bank is to just pick up a phone and to pretend to be someone else. That's right. And so VJ's PhD thesis uh, developed an algorithm to help you figure out if a caller is really who they say they are or not. Wow. Right. And so we've been, uh, that was eight years ago. So this was the, uh, let's see, 2011 that I, I met VJ and we started Pindrop. Uh, and so it's, yeah, eight years old. Yeah. And, and were you the co-founder? I was a co-founder of Pindrop. Yep. CTO again? Uh, no, I there took a, a slightly different role. My, my title at Pindrop is chairman mm-hmm. or executive chairman. Uh, and so VJ is the CEO and CTO. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was able to work with him on kind of the, the, the rest of the skills and, and problems that we needed to solve to go from an idea. Yeah. You know what we like to call build something for nothing, like to go from an idea to like a product, to a product plan, to like go to market and, you know, financing and all the other parts. Well, in the second company that you sold to Barracuda, were you part of the part of that selling process? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So then so you went from being on the technical side of things and then not being a co-founder, but kind of learning, having that great experience. Then you were a co-founder still on the technical side. And then because life happened, you, you were drawn more and more to the business side and the, the money side and the finance side. Yeah. And so then third company, you're co-founding it and now you're chairman. Yes. And so I can see that evolution happening there. So um, you, you say it's eight years old, but there was Luma in between that. Right. So you 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 what do you think about advice for people? Because um, sometimes some folks and I won't say who but me 
I uh, get accused of doing too much, quote unquote, but that's by people who aren't doing anything. So I don't know exactly what to say to them. But what do you think about that? I mean, is this the strategy that you're having uh, of having these multiple um, lives here as a, as a co-founder? Or is it just simply these are opportunistic? Um, you know, as a I've, I've transitioned, like as we went through those those different companies, you know, I've transitioned from kind of being the full time entrepreneur uh, to now there's more clarity of me as an investor. Yeah. Right. And so there's a, a phase in, in between there was doing both at the same time. Uh, but I do think that that focus is one of the most powerful tools. Right. Like when you're you, you wake up thinking about the same thing that you fall asleep thinking about yes. the same thing you're in traffic thinking about. Uh, the set of ideas and the set of solutions that pop in your mind uh, when you have that concentration are I think hard, hard to, to, to compare, yeah. hard to beat. And so focus, I, I do believe, is a, the best tool for entrepreneur. Uh, but then I think as an investor, uh, there's a bit of like being able to have these parallel thoughts and think about different sectors and different verticals and a apply lessons from one type of company to another, mm. that's a slightly different skill set, right? So if I'm meeting someone, uh, you know, in a company that's doing augmented reality for warehouses, but, you know, here's something that's useful for another company that's over here doing uh, cybersecurity for healthcare, like being able to exchange those ideas across verticals, um, I think is a, is a key attribute on an investor side. But on the entrepreneur side, I, I do like the focus periods of just thinking about the same problem and the same set of customers for you know, week mm -hmm. after week and month after month, I think is how the magic happens. It seems like you've done a hybrid where you have gone, you've had different lives and different companies, but they've been similar and who they're trying to protect. Yeah. And it might be you're going more and more smaller to the customer is a smaller and smaller customer or, you know, more and more people. But there is a focus there and I call it, you know, just being in the zone, you know, like it's, it's, it's a hybrid because it's multidimensional chess and you, it kind of makes sense to you. Right. I think that's, what's most important. Like if it makes sense to you, you know, the end game, you know what you're doing, right. You right. feel the confidence there. Um, and so let's talk about how, how Luma came to be. Okay. Again, what year was this that it was? Luma, I believe was 2015. Okay. I think it was yeah. 2015 and I was, uh, chatting with Mike again. So Mike from PureWire and CypherTrust. And we were talking about this concept, and this problem is emerging where you had just more devices in a home than ever before, uh, more bandwidth showing up, therefore more uh, kind of landscape for an attacker uh, to target than ever before. And there was not any uh, real solutions, like thoughtful solutions to that problem around connectivity, around safety, around security. Uh, and so that kind of created the, the concept of, of Luma. And so we started that company, uh, Mike and I. So Mike was uh, CEO, uh, I was chairman, and we you know, built the team and built the product. And uh, it was a hardware product, mm -hmm. right? So you yeah. get an even deeper collection of like challenges, right? Because it's not only the software you have to build, but it's the manufacturing you have to deal with. And it was a uh, consumer-based product, so you have a different go-to-market muscle. And so... Uh, so amazing kind of learning experience because there were challenges that we were taking on for the, for the first time uh, in, in our career. So that's how uh, Luma came about. Mm -hmm. And these are these are like discs that you would put in your put in a home or in an office and they would power your Wi-Fi and also protect. Exactly. Your, yeah. Exactly. And so um, and, and so how did that play out? Because or is it still playing out? Uh, so Luma was acquired, uh, I guess, about a year and a half ago now, yeah. uh, the beginning of. Of 2018. Yeah. Yeah. And so built that company uh, and went to market with the product, um, deployed it in you know, tens of thousands of homes, and the space became very competitive. Yeah. So I remember, it, Eero, what is it, Eero was it, kind of the main one that I remember seeing. Yeah. There's a company called Eero that was a, another kind of VC-funded startup. Uh, but really kind of two key things happened in that market. Uh, the incumbents, right, the Netgears and Lynxes of the world uh, responded very quickly to this shift of like mesh-based Wi-Fi and adding security to Wi-Fi routers. So these legacy incumbent companies actually started to react and change their product strategy. But then also uh, two other powerful companies decided they cared about that real estate in the home. Uh, so Google introduced a Wi-Fi product mm. uh, and Comcast really stepped up their Wi-Fi and security uh, product strategy. 
And so it turned out that this real estate was so valuable. The thing that connected the home uh, to the internet is pretty valuable real estate, which is kind of why we, we wanted it. Uh, and so the world realized it very quickly. And so within a 12-month window, it became, uh, one investor described it as kind of bloody knife fight. Yes. Right? Where everyone wanted that real estate and was willing to pay and do whatever was needed uh, to have it. And so it was like being in a, in a, a Star Wars battle, right? It's competitors on land, competitors in the air. They're moving swiftly. And so we, we built that company. We went to market. And then we actually went through... Uh, kind of a strategic acquisition process and kind of meeting with different companies that were interested in having Luma be part of it. And so it was acquired uh, and at the beginning of, of 2018. Can you say who acquired it? Uh, it was a, a Fortune 500 company uh, that acquired it. Is, I this, think. is it available publicly? It is available okay, publicly. Okay, so we'll so. look that up and yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pipe in here and say okay. what it is. For some reason, he's not saying it and I'll leave it at that. Uh, okay. <laughs> Interesting, uh, you know, private non-disclosures and, and all of these yeah, things Yeah, I, I just but, had that uh, discussion, of, discussion about NDAs, but if it is public knowledge, then we will find it. So and I have to say, I am not a, uh, a an investigative journalist. So, oh, <laughs> you know, it's all good. So so that was just very recent. That happened just recently. That was about a year and a half ago, that company was acquired. Is there and, is there a part of that now that you know as you as you build companies is it your reputation now part of the deal is, is someone coming in for you in addition to the product that you're working on? I think in in every company especially early stage people come in for the team. Yeah. Right? Um uh, it's you're you're betting on does this person have the the passion, do they have the grit, do they have the perseverance and hopefully they also have some secret Right. They know some path yeah. to get something done that the rest of the world hasn't figured out yet. Right. And I think when I'm doing early stage investing, right, I'm about 80 companies today. Uh, that's what you're 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 focusing your decision on is that person. And so, yeah, I end up falling that, that same boat. Like if someone's if I'm working on an early stage company and someone's getting involved with it, it's I think they're going through that same list and asking themselves if I qualify for that. Um, but yeah, I think it's absolutely a, about the person. So today, since that just happened in 2018, are you a, a co-founder of a company uh, that it, that you're actively working on? It sounds like you're at pin drop still, that it hasn't had any sort of exit. Uh, but and it also sounds like you're a very active inv investor. Right. So what do, what do you consider your day job today? Uh, my day job today is investing in companies. Uh, and so that's where I spend the majority of my cycles uh, today. Uh, and so I have not co-founded uh, another company uh, since then. <laughs> yes, uh, the day is young. I mean, there's <laughs> many more hours in this day. <laughs> Let's see what I could come up with while we're like a concert here, Essence. Um, but no, I, uh, you know, Pendrop is, I'm chairman there and it's an amazing company, a team. Uh, I think of it as kind of my oldest kid. <laughs> it's eight years old. Uh, but I spend the majority of my time uh, investing in early stage companies. And so, you know, any given week, I'm meeting with new entrepreneurs uh, or meeting with uh, folks that are already uh, kind of in the the portfolio and helping kind of solve all of the early stage challenges and go to market questions that we can help with. And are you doing this out of uh, a family office or out of a fund that you're working with other people on or how's that set up? Uh, so I started originally uh, doing it from my personal capital. Uh, so I'd invest in the check would say Judge Ventures. Uh, that's my personal capital. Uh, and then I, I started a space. Uh, we started a space called Tech Square Labs. Uh, as I was meeting more entrepreneurs, I was like, hey, in Atlanta at the time, this was five years ago, there really was no co-working. And I said, oh, there needs to be a place where like, like minds can come together and kind of you're building something, you need a place to build, right? And so there was an office depot right across the street from Georgia Tech. And we purchased the building and we turned it into a startup hub. Yes. And I have been there and it is just gorgeous. And I love, I remember walking around it because I was going to speak there. Okay. And I remember saying, what I loved about it was how large some of the offices are. Right. It didn't feel like a lot of these uh, co-working spaces, which are wonderful. We're invested in some of them. A lot of them are, they have a very distinct mm -hmm. feel to them. Like you are in a co-working space. Right. This, uh, uh, Tech Labs yeah. in Labs, Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. Tech Square Labs yeah. in Atlanta. Um, there are some offices there that just look like you're walking into an, another office yeah. and this is just the hallway to it, you right. know, or the lobby to it. It's right. really cool. Was that intentional? Yeah. We just wanted to make this open space and see what kind of the community turned it into. And the strategy at the time, you think about being in Atlanta, I, 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 there's 
three things that make Atlanta really uh, powerful and unique. Uh, I call them the three C's. And one is the colleges. Uh, another is the corporations. And another is the, co uh, the culture, right? So uh, the colleges, the corporations, and the culture, right? And so the colleges means, you know, you have Georgia Tech there, which is top six in 11 different engineering programs right now. It's 20,000 students across the street. And so you have Morehouse, you have Spelman, you have Georgia State. And so the amount of, there's a quarter million college students that are like constantly thinking about problems to go solve. Uh, corporation is almost like 30, 41,000 there. And a friend of mine once said, hey, you have these real companies in Atlanta and these real companies have real problems and you can figure out their problems, you can go make real startups. And so I said, wait, that's amazing. Let me start calling these companies and asking them what their problems are. I literally pick up the phone and try call the head of innovation at some Fortune 100. It's like, yeah, my name's Paul. And I'm just calling to figure out what your problems are. And that has morphed into doing corporate innovation work mm -hmm. where we can often sit in a room with 10, 12, 15 different Fortune 1000s and have brainstorm sessions about what problems they see. And we've now started a number of companies based on that yeah. by solving these common problems. And then the last one is the, the culture, right? It's kind of well known that Atlanta drives a lot of uh, the music taste of the country and therefore the music and lifestyle taste of the world. Uh, but we believe, you know, it's kind of culture and technology coming more and more together. That's a powerful tool for being able to spread the word and influence not only lifestyle, but the types of technology and types of tools that, that, that people use in their daily life. And so we spend a lot of time right now saying, how do we bring these three C's together? Because those aren't audiences that often interact. Right. Right. You think about a CEO of a Fortune 100 and like a head of a record label and then say like a student or a professor from a college, they don't often end up in the same rooms. And so we've been creating these environments and moments where folks get to know each other and meet each other and kind of interact socially and start to think about business problems that we can solve together. Uh, and so when we created that, that building, that was part of the goal. And now we do it in a number of different ways, whether it be like dinners at the house or kind of different events. Uh, we recently uh, invested in a, a conference called A3C. Uh, so there's been this hip hop conference that yeah. happened in Atlanta for the last 15 years. It's kind of the biggest hip hop uh, festival, but also conference. So you get speakers from uh, major music tech places and, and businesses. And so our view has been, okay, let's get more people to interact in this environment and also make it kind of the week where we invite the world to come to Atlanta. So Atlanta really didn't have that. Right. San Francisco has it and Aspen has it and Austin has it. But we didn't have a week where we and New Orleans has it now with Essence. Food. New Orleans absolutely has it. And we're, we're enjoying every moment of it. But it's exactly that. Like, when do we invite the world to come be in the same place at the same time? Uh, and so nowadays I spend a lot of my time investing in tech companies, but also helping to kind of bring these three parts of the city together, because I think that will make our next generation of the types of companies that come out of Atlanta. Hmm. And I, I, I'm kind of curious that on a, from a personal standpoint, how do you, uh, being such a early part of this tech world and, and walking through the world as a man of color, right? How do you um, feel about what's happening now? Do you see that there's something, is it, does it feel like a good change is happening? And do you, yeah, like, what do you see there? Because I, you've seen it from different angles. Right. And I would just be curious about your opinion, candidly. Do you think that it is our time now that something is happening? Or do you think, oh, I've seen this before and this is not going <laughs> to, this is just, you know, fluff? No, I, I'm, I look from a positive lens of, you know, times are, are, are changing, but for a few different reasons. One is, uh, you know, this consumerization of, of technology, right? Where 15 years ago, so much of the... Um, Technology companies that reach scale were about selling enterprise IT, right? Or very hard, deep semiconductor technology or things like that. Now with this consumerization of technology, a couple of things happen. The decision-making process is similar to the kind of style and decision-making process of kind of influencing culture, right? Uh, but then also kind of the cloud and other development tools have changed such that uh, the building of technology solutions is much cheaper, most, more cost effective than it was 10 to 15 years ago, right? Uh, and also there's now this exposure to the types of wealth creation that are possible in the technology world. And right, so you bring that exposure, 
plus a different audience that's driving value creation in technology, uh, plus the reduced cost of building technology companies. When you bring all those three things together, it's created this environment that is perfect now for folks that were otherwise the, the outsiders to now be involved and be active. Uh, and so now it, it, in my opinion, very much resembles kind of the ability to create kind of something from pure thought that we saw in like the music industry or that we see in the art industry, where you can go from something you're thinking to low cost of production, something that's like software that's living and breathing and running on a computer and like creating value and, and creating wealth. And so I, I do believe that it's kind of creating something that feels like one of the closest things to equal opportunity that we've seen and also resembles other creative industries in which we've been successful uh, in, in the past. And so that is, is promising to me. And I, I believe as we get more examples of success, more people become interested and curious and start to kind of walk over across the aisle or across the street and, and get involved. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to zoom in and build one successful company at a time. Uh, and so that's kind of the reminder that I, I like to have our, our community re remember is, you know, it, it gets measured by, you know, did we go create value? Did we go create attractive returns? Got a one company at a time. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what we try to participate in, like really zooming into promising entrepreneurs and figuring out how to go, like make that exact company successful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's very, um, you know, I get to be in some really awesome rooms with people yeah. who have very different opinions uh -huh. and a lot of times different opinions than mine. And, but I, I, I respect that um, uh, point of view. I was just talking to Jewel Burks about um, being really intentional mm -hmm. and how sometimes when she's looking at what backstage is doing or what I'm doing, she gets nervous. Hmm. And, 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 and we talk about, we talked about this for six years, you know, okay. almost six years of uh, five years. And um, yeah, I think that it is, it is sort of this heyday that's starting now and we have to be um, bold and we have to be intentional and we have to be focused in a way that um, again, we were talking about that, sort of hybrid of that confidence of understanding what the end goal is. Right. And like you say, landing the plane. Right. Yeah. It's all really important. So yeah. you, you, do you generally feel optimistic? Do you, about this, about tech and about your life and what's next? Do I generally feel optimistic? Because um, it seems to me, the reason I ask is because it seems to me, again, going back to what we started with, that you, you may not even be doing this on purpose, but it seems like you're living, a, like a you're purposely living a good life and it is acting as an example, even if you're not doing that on purpose. Yep. So that is kind of hopeful and has an optimistic flair to it. Is that in line with how you feel? I think I just look, I, I came from down the street in Baton Rouge, like the, the bottom of Louisiana, right? The backside of the city. Uh, you know, we couldn't afford to, to go to college. I was able to get there because of a scholarship. And, you know, just when you really come from nothing, and you put the work in to like create something, uh, you have an a, appreciation for kind of how hard work uh, turns into results. And then those results turn into ideally some amount of capital. And with enough capital it becomes a tool and it becomes a tool to not only, you know, help yourself and then your family, but then how can you help a community? How can you help an entire population? And so I spend so much of my time on, on that. Right. Uh, if I put in more work and get more success, I have more wealth equal tool to affect more people. There's only so much you can do for myself to like live a comfortable life. I've been fortunate in that regard. But there's so much around this. Um, there's this responsibility to use kind of the the skills that I have to go create more success, not just for me, but but for others. Right. So for every other successful entrepreneur that we can create that becomes uh, successful and wealthy. They become a role model, but they also have tools to go help their family and their community. And, you know, there's just tens and hundreds and thousands of those. Like we start to kind of change the world. Uh, and so I know it's possible because I've lived through it. And so I, I'm optimistic from that viewpoint because I've seen what it's like to go from nothing. But, you know, kind of Kanye has this thing about, you know, five beats a day for three summers, right? Like, when I was in college, I did college in three years because I didn't have a social life when I was in college, right? I did a PhD in four years because I didn't have a social life when I was, I would go 
with a stack of papers on a Friday night and a two liter of Mountain Dew. And I would come back out of my cube on Monday. Right. And so, yeah, nowadays people might see like, oh, here's a picture and you doing this mm-hmm. and do doing that. Uh, but yeah, it's been 20 plus years. So I'm, I'm optimistic that hard work and thoughtfulness can turn into success. And, but it takes, you know, I'd say seven to 10 years on average, right? You put that thing in the oven, you put hard work and thoughtfulness into oven and seven to 10 years later, success comes out. And I do believe that some people that are less optimistic, it's because of a lack of patience, right? That, you know, in this Instagram, you mentioned Instagram, but it's an Instagram driven world. Like it would have you believe that people will become successful in three months or six months. And so some people work really hard for three to six months and they look up and they're like, wait, I'm not wealthy yet. I'm not successful yet. I haven't IPO'd. Ah, I hate it. Right. The Mm -hmm. world's against me. It's like, no, it's like, keep your head down, stay focused and keep building for seven years, for 10 years. You know, it's often said that people overestimate what they can get done in one year. Right. And underestimate what they can get done in a decade. Yeah. And I believe that that unfortunately turns into uh, this pessimism that we often see. And we're talking, you know, about, you know, let's say underrepresented people in technology right now. Right. Like, you know, we're talking about minorities. We're talking about women. And and so I do. I, I hope that we can have more patience and understand what it means to actually work on the same thing every day mm-hmm. for like 2000 days, 3000 yeah. days. And I believe when we take that long-term view, we would actually be uh, more optimistic uh, and kind of see, see more results. And so, yeah, I think that's where you say my optimism comes from. Uh, I think it's just mixing hard work with, with patience and uh, not getting frustrated by, by any short-term kind of down cycles, right? I always say that building a company is like, I'm killing it, it's killing me, I'm killing it, it's killing me. And realizing at the end, like you're going to get through that roller coaster if you just stick with it. Uh, and so that's, that's where it comes from for me. I think we're, we're cut from the same cloth because um, that, that's it. That's, you know, the, the misconceptions of any from the outside can be just kind of brushed off because you know and I know that, I mean, I think I'm six years, I call this six years in to what we're doing at Backstage. And I keep telling people who are worried about something that happened in a week ago or three months ago, I keep saying, look, six years in, Mm -hmm. the end of 2020, Backstage will be turning money away. It's just, it's just, you know, it's that patience. It's that every single day going forward, one foot in front of the other. And, and frankly, people not knowing how tough it is at times right. and, and, and then yes, celebrating the times we can take a breath and, and celebrate something. Yeah. So I a hundred percent agree. And uh, I think, I mean, this is great. I, l- I love hearing about this story. I feel like there are many uh, episodes where we're going to have to do a part two and I hope that we can do a part two someday okay. because there's, I know there's a lot more that we didn't get to today, but this has been a great foundational. If people want to learn more about you, how do they find you? I am, you know, pjudge.com on the web and I'm at Paul Judge on you know any of the the socials yeah we have this noise we're not going to be able to get rid of this noise because we're running out of time but um p judge and at paul judge yep pjudge.com on the web and at paul judge on on any of the socials Uh, so easy easy to find that's wonderful if we want to learn more about the companies you've invested in do you make that public anywhere or is that kind of you know secret it's, it's not secret. I should do be more vocal about it. But some number of them are on, on pjudge.com. Uh, some of them are on, uh, we have another website called techsquare.co. Uh, and so, yeah, happy to, to share. Some of them are, you know, very hard tech stuff. And some of them are very much around solving cultural issues. And the last thing I'll ask you is, if you're in Atlanta or want to move to Atlanta, how do you get a space at? So it's interesting. So TechSquare Labs is now the building, the physical space is now focused on corporate innovation. Uh, and so if you're interested in working with corporations and doing corporate innovation, uh, yeah, give us a shout there at TechSquare Labs. Uh, if you're interested in like co-working and community, there's another space in town called The Gathering Spot uh, where we've invested. I love that place. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I love Ryan and TK. They're, they're, they're great people. And so uh, an investor there 
And then we also are building A3C together. And so no matter what you're, you're trying to solve for in, in Atlanta, right, whether it be around colleges or corporations or, or culture, I think we, we have you covered. So, yeah, come on to town. Everybody's moving to Atlanta. All right. Thanks so much for joining. Hey, so I'd love to talk to you and keep the conversation going. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at Arlen was here. That's A-R-L-A-N was here. Stick around too, because I will let you know when my new book is going to be in pre-order. Now that's coming out in uh, 2020. It'll be out as the real book. Oh my goodness. And it'll be you'll be able to pre-order it most likely this year so stay tuned i'll let you know all about that on twitter on instagram and on this podcast